0: Welcome to The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Becky Scher.
1: And I'm Michael Broadcorp.
0: And we are once again today welcomed by our illustrious co-host, Jeff Kolb. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, we are welcoming back Dr. Scott Jensen for the second time on this podcast. Our first conversation with the 2022 gubernatorial candidate garnered a lot of attention. It spurred further discussion on the Republican Party's stance on abortion and general messaging issues damaging the GOP brand and cam- candidates. It also brought forth more dialogue surrounding the MNGOP endorsement process and its potential to hamstring candidates up and down the ticket. Today, we are going to start by breaking down reactions from our first interview with Dr. Scott Jensen, the good and the bad. We are then going to break down some topics a bit further, give a deeper dive to items we may have not given enough time to the first time around, and hear any insights Jensen may have wished he could get into last time but wasn't able to. And then we'll end by breaking down a recent op-ed from Jensen's Lieutenant Governor Running Mate from 2022, Matt Burke, titled, It's Time for the Pro-Choice People to Come Clean. Finally, we'll end our show with a typical treats of the week and the food fight with Broadcorp and Becky and Kolb. This week, we hope to deliver with our food fight on fast food. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show.
2: Are we in a small talk? We're not going to small talk? I, I don't. Do we need to do small talk? Wow. Well, okay. I guess we're not going to small talk. We're just going to jump right into it. Do you want a small talk? I mean, I like, I kind of like the small talk part. Let's do small talk then, Jeff. Kay. What do you have? Becky. Yeah. Nice intro. However, you included the worst word in the English language in your intro, gubernatorial. You don't like that? I don't like it at all. I don't like anything about it. It's a word. Yeah, but it's a bad word. Yeah, I don't know how you take a G-O-V and then you turn it into a B and I I just, it it sounds like goober, which is fine because I like to call people goobers, but I just, I'm not a big fan of gubernatorial. (laughs)
0: Noted. Um. Uh, next time they consult me when writing words in the dictionary, I will be sure to let them know that they need to consult you.
2: I will 100% rewrite a sentence to avoid having to say gubernatorial.
0: Kind of makes me feel smart. So maybe I'll just start using it more often just to annoy you.
1: Well, that sounds about right. Michael, thoughts
0: on the word gubernatorial.
1: I just find it interesting interesting that this is the small talk that Jeff wanted to have. It (laughs) appears that the small talk that he wanted to have was an opportunity to voice his opinion about Becky using a grammatically correct word that he didn't like.
2: It wasn't a knock on Becky. It
1: It was a knock on
2: the word. No, no, it was not. It was a knock on the
1: word. It's just a weird (laughs) word. It's a gross word. I don't like it. You advocated for more time for small talk, which you then used to not really engage in small talk, but to correct Becky. Oh, okay.
2: Uh, have you? How's the weather out there at your place, Michael? Did you get any rain this week? How about that hailstorm? I did. That, would you prefer? I had a lot of rain.
1: A lot yeah, of no talk ca- about. No it. one
2: cares. No, no one cares about the rain. I was driving no through about... the
0: hailstorm. That was pretty horrific.
2: I've never driven in a hail in a hailstorm. Thankfully, uh, I did walk out in my yard during the hailstorm because uh, it was kind of fun to see what was going on. We got we got what I'd consider. I don't know, it was like like a little bit smaller than
1: a golf ball.
0: I think this was just a segue because he actually wanted to talk about weather.
2: No, I didn't. I wanted to talk about gubernatorial.
1: By the way, it's a very Minnesotan thing to stand outside in a hailstorm and then post on social media how big of the hailstones or rain or whatever you got. It's important news. It's news you can use. We had some very ominous clouds coming into Egan, and my children thought this Rolling Stormfront was the perfect backdrop for me to have a new headshot.
0: Oh, that's so
1: exciting. There's a lot of uh that's, did you take did you take a headshot or I did it's not me. It would have been maybe 10, 12 years ago, 13, 14, 15 years ago. It's not me. It, right. had, it had hair.
0: It's not the, Oh, wow. It's not it's not there the is. persona you're looking for not with the persona it. I'm looking for. All right. Yeah. Well, speaking of the word gubernatorial, should we get into our interview with gubernatorial candidate, Dr. Scott
3: Jensen?
1: Let's do it. Well played, Becky. Dr. Jensen, it's great to have you back in studio today.
3: Well, thank you. It's, it's fun to be a part of the conversation.
1: Go around the horn and start with you. What was the reaction when we had our interview with you a few weeks ago? Thoughts, feedback, what did you hear from people?
3: It was a robust response. I think I was a little surprised that it wasn't more negative. I thought that people would be upset with me saying that I was not holding to the core convictions. And I really was quite pleased with the fact that a lot of people recognize that it's conceivable that a person can be personally very pro-life and from a policy perspective recognize the fact that the American Republic has been built on the notion that the majority rules and the minority gets to retain rights as well. And so I think that people are thinking about it. And I think for that reason, I think Michael, you and Becky and Jeff should, should also hopefully be proud of the fact that we're helping shape and push forward a conversation. That's not easy. I get that. But I think, if we don't have this conversation now, then so many other important issues that shape our country and our state may not get the attention that they deserve.
1: I would tell you that the re- I got robust is a fair way to describe the reaction I got. I think I heard from both sides, people that were frustrated, people that were happy. Everyone had an opinion that I spoke with. I'm really proud of the discussion we had, particularly in light of my analysis and commentary of your race in 2022, and that we were able to come together in a room and have a free exchange of ideas where everyone had an opportunity to speak. And I'm really proud of the discussion we had. And I will be forever thankful to all of everyone that participated in the discussion, but especially you, because uh, Dr. Jensen, I don't think We could have had that type of conversation without you being here and we can all discuss and analyze and provide commentary about politics. But I think what was most significant about the discussion was it was coming from a candidate, someone who had just been endorsed, someone who had just put themselves through the public arena and you still are in the public arena. And so it was incredibly important to me. I'm proud of the conversation we had and it's part of the reason I wanted to do this follow up is because I do think in light of all of our other podcast episodes, the one that we all did with you, really struck with people. I think it was worthy of a follow-up conversation to discuss what have we all heard since the last podcast and how do we continue to have the conversation going forward? Jeff, your thoughts.
2: So I think, uh, again, robust is a great word for it. It was interesting. I, I heard everything from I was way too easy on you to I was way too hard on you. So that was that was fun because everybody kind of heard their own, um, I think everyone had their own reaction uh clearly it got a lot of attention. I mean, I think we we certainly kickstarted a conversation that I think needs to be had. I think um if I could uh, if I could lean in a bit on um maybe a little bit on the a bit too hard on you side. One of the one of the things that I heard kind of a lot from people was um right message, wrong messenger. Um and so I'd like to get I, I think a little bit of your Your reaction to that, that that people said basically, I like what his message is, but based on how the campaign went, I'm not interested in hearing it from Scott Jensen specifically.
3: I heard that too a little bit. I heard that from just a couple of places, but everybody's entitled to their opinion. I, I absolutely understand that. But I thought that was odd because if you look at whose name has been on the general ballot in a governor's election this century. Arguably, I think it's been about eight names. I think on the Democrat side, you'd have Walls and Dayton and Hatch, and was it Roger Mull? Yep. And the Republican side, you'd have Palenty and Emmer and Johnson and myself. Well, I don't know how other people break things down or learn about their, their lives or their mistakes, but I always learn a lot more when I lose than when I win. If I win a golf match, oftentimes there's a perhaps a congratulatory beer afterwards and driving home, I feel good about the fact that I was able to win and then I move on with my day or whatever. But if I lose when I thought I should have won, and I remember specifically losing a golf tournament where with nine holes left, I had an eight-stroke lead. So that's pretty darn embarrassing. And I went over every swing over and over again, asking myself why I couldn't have done a better job, why I didn't respond to the situation better. I think you could use the same analogy for a campaign. I think sometimes it's the losers, and I lost fair and square and by a significant margin, that might have something to say about why. And I think the Republicans have lost something like 30 statewide elections in a row. And I think that I can... Be pretty comfortable being forthright about the fact that I was the candidate, the buck stops at my desk. I was the one who put one word after another that might have allowed something to be taken as a soundbite and used, if you will, in a powerful way against our campaign. So if people want to say, well, yeah, the message is worth hearing, but I don't want to hear it from him, I would ask them to go a little deeper. And ask themselves, who exactly do they think is going to share that message? Who's going to be willing to come forward? I mean, I think Tim Pawlenty can comment specifically on a strategy of going to an endorsement convention or not and trying to win in a primary. And Jeff Johnson can certainly speak to the issue of, you know, going a second time. And Tom Emmer can speak to the issues that were present in his campaign. And so can Mike Hatch and Roger Moen. Even the winners, Mark Dayton and Tim Walls. So I think when people say those kinds of things, frankly, I'm not impressed. Socrates said the unexamined life isn't worth living, or something to that effect. And I would tell those people the same thing. If they're not willing to hear what I have to say after I went through a grueling two-year campaign, put my heart and soul on the line, received death threats, accomplished more than many candidates have ever been able to accomplish. If they don't want to hear it from me, then I tell them to turn the damn radio off.
2: All right. Uh, I wanted to just point out for the people listening, uh, Becky is remote today. Correct. And so she's not in the studio with us. And so it's it's a little bit difficult for us to make sure that she gets in on the conversation. And so I don't want anyone to think that we're leaving her out of the conversation. Becky, I've got some great follow-ups based on that, but I did want to give you the space to kind of jump in here um, since you can't you know, kind of flag me down on in like you would if you were sitting in the room,
0: um, I just kind of wanted to share that I heard uh, very robust you know reactions as well. I heard um frustration from some delegates and activists who maybe felt a little. Potentially lied to along the way. I had heard a lot of people that were um, applauding you coming out. I know they know and recognize some folks recognize certainly that it wasn't an easy thing to do. That you could have you know stayed behind the stances you had and and having this conversation and starting this dialogue um, certainly is not easy for anybody on the Republican side to come out loudly pro-choice and and take that kind of stance, but especially somebody who was a previous statewide candidate. And I will say I heard from even a number of reporters who said that they have never heard a more honest, pure, vulnerable candidate um, interview post-loss. So I think there are a lot of ranging emotions uh, when it comes to that. I think we are grateful that you were able to and willing to join us, give us so much time to have this conversation and start this dialogue. Uh, I think it's, you know, exciting that we get a round two here, and I'm excited to see uh, what more we can dive into and and where we can go.
3: Thank you for that, Becky.
2: All right. So if I could take the next follow-up, and again, Michael kind of, Michael enjoyed the conversation we had last time and cautioned me ahead of time to phrase my questions in a way so that you'd be, you'd be willing to come back again. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I think I have been long on the record, and I've said this many times in many different forums, that um, I feel that people, candidates who lose, uh, that then come to the next state central meeting should be booed rather than celebrated. And what I mean by that is when you're the candidate, you go out and you say, I'm the best person to go out and win this race, and you should put your energy and your effort behind me, and you should come and you should um, you should support me. And then they go out, and then they run the race, and then they lose. And people should be angry about that, I think. That's my opinion. Excuse the-
3: me, Jeff. You are saying that you think... People should be angry with the candidate because he or she lost? Yes.
2: Interesting. There should be some anger, yes. Instead, generally what happens is that candidates are celebrated. They get this big standing ovation and everybody's really nice to them. And we we never have that introspective conversation. So then cut to, we did have that introspective conversation. We sat here and we talked about it and you provided the most, again, the most honest kind of self-assessment of how a campaign, how your campaign ran and where the mistakes were and how people should do things differently to not end up in that same place. And I didn't hear excuses. I didn't hear a lot of, you know, oh, if the RGA had just come in and done this, or if this outside group had done this, or we got outspent 10 to one, what did you think was going to happen? I didn't hear that from you. But then what I heard was kind of a lot of, I, I did get a lot of angry people um, in the responses, and they were like, "I, they, some people were really mad at you. And I find that backwards because, again, um, none of the other candidates who have lost recently have ever come out and said and had that kind of honest conversation about what went wrong and what we should do different next time. Usually we get a lot of the... Michael, help me out with the movie because I'm gonna get it wrong. There's a there's a movie quote.
1: <laughs> there's a movie called Mr. Baseball. And in the movie, Tom Selleck is on the Yankees and he's gonna be traded to a team in Japan. And his argument to the manager is the why he shouldn't be traded is because he led the team in ninth inning doubles in the month of August. And it's this and the point I've made to Jeff about it is that what we've seen a lot of times is candidates come out and their staff post-election loss have constructed this ridiculous analysis by which they should feel good about the loss. And I think to Jeff's point, please correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think what we saw with you is no, no veneer. It, you were, it was bare wood. You came in and just talked directly and candidly. You led with your heart. You were, you, there was no aura of arrogance or, and it was pure candor and it was honesty. And that's what I think we found. I found so compelling.
2: It, which is entirely right now. Then take that to the point of then why is the feedback? So why is there so much anger and why is there, I, I feel an anger towards Scott Jensen that I did not feel toward Jeff Johnson toward, I wasn't here in, thankfully I missed the 2010, but Jeff Johnson, the last two times there, there just wasn't that level of anger from, I would call it the activist class, that I, that I felt based on the people who reached out to me post-interview.
1: Uh, Becky has, has got her hand up, so I want to give her a chance to chime in.
0: Yeah, I wanted to um, kind of play devil's advocate a little bit uh, and, and share feedback that I did get. The frustration I heard from some activists or delegates or even other campaign staff was um, some of the conversation along the lines of that going through for the endorsement forced Forces a candidate or force Jensen to to make these statements and to come out this way in the messaging. Um, something uh, the text message I got says nothing forces you, maybe traps you, but it's up to the candidate to make your decision, which I think is certainly a valid st- stance. Um, I took my our conversation as more of jensen understanding that right like that to be to win the endorsement you kind of have to come out with these things that, again to certain no no delegate is coming out there you know with with you know any sort of physical threat to to get you to force you to make those statements it is certainly was jensen and i think jensen uh dr jensen um certainly acknowledge that, that 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 was his choice to to make um, but he felt as though he kind of had to to be there so I think from some of the feedback that I got from some of those delegates and activists was that they just felt a little duped um by by being told one thing and now being told another
1: I'll give you a chance to respond then I have something but go ahead sir
3: thank you Becky I would simply say that details matter and From February 1st, 2022 to May 14th, 2022, the backstop of Roe v. Wade had been in place just as it had been for the prior 49 years. I think that matters. I think we've had candidates left and right for decades sort of toe the party line and often make a strategic decision, not expecting it to matter a whole lot regarding should we try to outflank this candidate on the right or the left or whatever. We're seeing it happen right now on the national level as we watch the Republican presidential candidates jockey for a position. So I think at some level, for people to not recognize the reality of that is perhaps being slightly less than honest with oneself. Nobody really goes as far as we went without their literally every waking moment being permeated by the desire to be successful. I think Jeff made an interesting observation earlier where he thought that a losing candidate should go before his or her. Colleagues in the party at a state central meeting and be booed. I thought that was an interesting comment on his part because he followed it up with a question why was I then being, if you will, at some level demonized following our previous conversation? And I would say I was because of his sentiment that when you lose, you should be demonized. And then I had the gall to say that I lost in part because. I wasn't up to the task of messaging in a way that would, if you will, be both defensive and offensive. We might have tried to go on the offense, but on some of the issues where we should have played better defense, we didn't. And so I think I had, I guess, two punishments coming. One is I lost, and two is after I lost, I had the audacity to say, I lost because of this, I wasn't up to the task, and we had a 50-year-old backstop removed right in the middle of it. That's what happened. I would
1: agree with you. One of the things is, you were going through the list, and I was hearing Jeff's question and your response. So I think the missed opportunity that I would articulate now is that, why haven't other candidates done what you're doing? There is certainly something that Jeff Johnson could have offered on the his loss in 18 and 14. There's something that Emmer could have offered and other candidates could have offered. And it seems that What we've had is we've had a vacuum of any post-election accountability. And so when someone comes forward and wants to offer a perspective, it's just, it's so foreign to the activists. It's so foreign to people. One of the things that we discussed in the aftermath after you left the room is it was just our heads were spinning. Because we, as I know that from my perspective, when the interview that our first interview was unfolding, it was what was going on was historic in the room just from my understanding of party politics and party operations, to hear a candidate be as candid as you were is significant, it's historic, but it's also incredibly helpful. And I do think that there are things that these other candidates could have offered statewide.
2: Yes, and I think that that lack of introspection is what creates the cycle of losing time after time after time. And so that's why I think it's kind of funny that you have someone who's finally taking accountability and finally having this conversation publicly. And then the kind of residual anger, it, it doesn't add up because it feels like that's what we should be doing. Those mm-hmm. are the conversations we should be having, and that's what we should be talking about. And because to, I, I guess, the very first point you made about w- learning from winning or losing, right? I, you if you just lose and you don't learn from the loss, then then you haven't accomplished anything. And I think that that, is, that describes the state of the party in this state for a long time, which is, I think, a, <clears throat> a comfort with losing or an expectation of losing. And so therefore, we already have all of the excuses lined up. We already know that it's the RGA's fault, and we already know that it's the big donor's fault, and we already know that it's ABM's fault, and we got outspent it 10 to 1 and all of these things. And then people just state those as if that's like, that's okay. Well, what did you expect? I expected you to win, is what I expect. So,
3: Jeff, I think when you use those acronyms, RGA, and what was the other one used? ABM. ABM. And I think the everyday person out there doesn't even know what they stand for. Yeah. And I think that you wanted to have a conversation that was bigger than simply a Monday morning analysis of where the game went wrong. Where you're talking to football walks on a Monday morning or you're talking to uh, delegates uh, after an election. If you look at the 1.19 or whatever it was, million people who voted uh, for the Jensen ticket, I think that most of them are everyday people who get up in the morning, get dressed and go work and get involved with their family or whatever. And I think they're interested in real, And that was one of the reasons why I was willing to put the original commentary out there that you folks responded to and said, hey, can we have a broader conversation? And I said, yes. I think that we really need to have a conversation about abortion. My entire adult life has been under the cloud of Roe v. Wade. And during almost all those years, it was the Republican Party that wanted that dismantled. And now, in the last 14 months since it occurred, people are saying, shoot a mile. That didn't work out the way we expected. Now we've got abortion going on to the day of delivery. We've become (laughs) an epicenter for abortion. We're not going to stay at 10,000 abortions a year. We're going to 12,000 and kicking higher. And I think I'm saying, hey, folks, come on. We talked about inflation and crime and education a lot during the campaign, but that didn't get the traction. And you can't blame uh, the people who voted on that one given issue, because that doesn't get us anywhere. They voted on the issue that they thought was most compelling, because in large part, this country has been slow to recognize the rights of women. We still haven't passed the ERA amendment in Minnesota. It was 150 years from the birth of our country till women finally got the vote. Women have at times been treated as property, and people who aren't necessarily pro-choice said, I'll be darned if I'm going to give an inch. So we saw places like Kansas that voted soundly to defeat a potential ban on abortion. And the only way that calculus works out is for pro-life people to vote pro-choice. And if we can't have this kind of conversation, and if the delegates aren't able to, if you will, entertain that kind of thought process, then they're really not interested in winning elections.
1: No, you're exactly right. And I think that what led to our conversation was was your op-ed and the subject of abortion and how it played into the race. I would agree with you. I do think that Republicans had a safe space with the backstop of Roe v. Wade. And once that was taken away, it was no longer, you couldn't discuss this stuff in kind of the, in the safe guardrails anymore. There was reality to it. And the truth of the matter is I think that, and when you were discussing about abortion being on the ballot in some form of amendment, of some form of statewide initiative, my concern about that from a partisan perspective is I don't know that Republicans know where they are on the issue. And so I think before Republicans get to having a broader conversation with the state where they are, just looking from a partisan standpoint, I don't know that Republicans know where they are on the issue of abortion.
3: I don't think the Republicans will be writing the document. I think it'll be the Democrats. They showed us that they were able to run the table in the last seven months. I think they'd do it again. And I think that they'd be wise to be measured and thoughtful. And I think they understand that. I think that at some level, there are going to be people out there that voted Democrat in 2022 that thought that the Democrats would do everything they could to enshrine those rights and to do everything it could you would take it out of the arena of routine legislative lawmaking, which can be flip-flopped, or reversed, and un- unraveled, if you will, and they would go ahead and get it on the Constitution because th- if they're reasonable, they should have no trouble getting that passed because 70% of Minnesotans who vote believe that at some level access to abortion as a safe and legal procedure should be preserved. And I think that's why we should understand that the majority rules. And if we want to be pro-life, then let's go out and reduce abortions. And the way you reduce abortions is you make it a less necessary consideration. You put birth control pills on, over the counter, inexpensive. You put the morning after pill next to the Tylenol bottle. You you teach people about natural family planning, you streamline adoption, you talk about the options and you do these things. But if all you want to do is kick and scream and take the high moral ground, I would challenge you and tell you, you've already lost the high moral ground. If you've said that you'd be okay with six weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks or 15 weeks, you've turned it into a negotiation. So this idea that, listen, my perspective is pure. I'm sorry, folks. We can create living embryos that will go to full-fledged human beings without the use of ovaries, testicles, sperm, or eggs. And at some level, we're going to have to recognize that while that technological advance makes us uncomfortable, it is a part of the reality of the day. And we've seen this before, where our technological capabilities outrace our ability to deal with the ethics of the situation. And people are responding to that. And I get that. And if I need to be the sacrificial lamb to push this conversation forward, I'm fine with that. Because most other people people getting back to jeff's question why don't other losing candidates do this i think oftentimes they're saying well what if what if i would risk my whole political career i don't care okay becky
1: you have a follow up
0: Yeah, two actual comments. Um, One, I want to start again. I like to play my role of devil's advocate here. I I completely agree with what you're saying about abortion on the ballot and access to contraception and and everything of the above. Two two comments on that though. One, do you hear from is in particular Republicans who? are more on strict on the Constitution side of things, who believe, who may believe in in access to abortion, but don't believe the Constitution is the home for that? What, what are your thoughts on that? Or have you heard any conversation around that?
3: That's an interesting question, Becky, because you went straight into the weeds on that one. That's really parsing it out. I had a phone call just recently from one of the uh, members of the Minnesota legislature, Republican, who said, Doc, I'm not with you all the way but I'm with you 90% of it. And I really appreciate that you are willing to do this. And that person was flabbergasted that two days ago at the state central meeting, there was an effort to censure me for my comments in the commentary. Uh, This person said, I just can't believe that the party isn't able to understand that we're losing on this issue. We're going to continue to lose on this issue. And in 2024, it's going to keep us from accomplishing our objectives. So, I'm not necessarily hearing any discussion, Becky, on should we put it into language that would go into the Constitution or not, but I'm hearing from them saying, gee whiz this is a conversation that's absolutely critical if we want to accomplish our objectives in 2024. And yet we've got the state central meeting as a place where people are saying they're going to censure Scott Jensen because he comes out and says that he's passionately, personally pro-life, but from a policy perspective, he recognizes that the majority of people want some access to safe, legal abortion. I just think that this is a conversation that's It's absolutely necessary. I I don't think it's long overdue because I think what Michael just said is absolutely true. The backstop was there for 49 years. And when the backstop went away, it went away for both parties. But the Democrats right now are winning because the majority of Minnesotans and probably the majority of Americans believe that some access to safe, legal, and rare abortions should be preserved.
1: Becky, do you have a follow-up?
0: My only follow-up is kind of just how do we, um, because you kind of mentioned two things. One, get abortion, this, this on the ballot, let's the voters decide, let's have that conversation and continue to figure out where Republicans, you know, 70% of Minnesotans fall on this. Secondly, you're advocating for this this new access to to Plan B, to condoms, to birth controls, and having that readily available on the shelves when you go into Target or Walmart or Walgreens. Um How do you see that second path? How how do we continue that path forward? I mean, is that something are you going to champion in and start uh, being a citizen lobbyist up at the legislature? Or how do we continue that path forward alongside the the abortion amendment?
3: That's not a new topic for me, Becky. I've been advocating for over-the-counter birth control pills for at least five years, probably predating my term in the Senate. I've thought that when we moved from Well, let's just take a few drugs. When Zantac, which is for heartburn, when I was a resident in the early 1980s, as a resident physician, I could not write a prescription for Zantac without having a specialist approve my prescription. Now it's over the counter. Let's take another more controversial medicine, as long as we're going controversial today. Let's take ivermectin. Ivermectin is over the counter. It's called SCLICE. You can rub it into your kid's hair for head lice. It's over-the-counter. We've had numerous drugs go from prescription to over-the-counter. Plan B is over-the-counter already. It's just that it's not necessarily at a cost that's doable for a lot of folks. So I've been saying for a long time that one of the problems with the pro-life movement is I think there's almost a tendency to use the pro-life platform to shape the sexual mores of a society. We don't get to do that. We don't get to use the pro-life platform to tell you that if you're gonna be sexually active, you gotta roll the dice and have pregnancy be a part of the possible equation. That doesn't happen. I think the baby boomers, of which I am in the middle of the group, have to recognize that if we see that there's a problem today in our societal fabric, It didn't come from the young people between 18 and 30. Divorce and broken nuclear families really became epidemic from baby boomers, from people who were born between 1946 and 1964. That's where it came from. Let's be honest. We might look at the younger generation and say, gee whiz, look at what they're doing. They're doing this, this, and this. (laughs) Do you remember Woodstock? Do you remember people climbing around in the mud having sex out in the open? This is what happened. This is on us. So if we can't lead the conversation, then let me put it another way. We're dying. Every year, approximately two and a half million Americans over the age of 60 die. Every year, four million new Americans come on the voting roll. They all turn 18. Four million plus 2.5 is 6.5. Multiply that by eight, and you've got over $50 million for a turnaround. Now, of course, it's not going to all be liberal and all be a loss for the conservatives. But you know what I'm saying, that if you've got new voters coming in, and they're not impressed with a party that seems to be increasingly irrelevant and still branded by the idea of a bunch of white, old, wealthy guys, and then you've got this other party saying, we're going to respond to your needs, and we're going to look at tuition-free college, and we're going to look at forgiveness of your debt, and we're going to look at getting out of the bedroom. What do you think is going to happen?
1: You want to follow up, Jeff?
2: Well, first of all, as a proud member of Gen X, I'm happy to blame baby boomers for anything.
3: So We need to start accepting the blame. We're on our way out. (laughs) Maybe the last thing we could do is help straighten this out because I don't think we've been a part of having the honest conversation with the young folks.
1: Dr. Jensen, we need to be clear though here. That's open to debate and determination and if Jeff Kolb is a member of Gen X. I believe he's a member no, of Gen Z. There is no um, debate whatsoever. And so,
3: when I close my eyes, Jeff looks a lot younger. Oh,
1: oh God there bless is, you. There is
3: God no debate. So I just need to clear absolute, the record there before we, we move Gen forward.
1: But, but go ahead, Jeff. I, you
2: may continue. I wanted to go back to just kind of a, a technical question because I don't know the answer to this. But how does a drug go from prescription to over the counter. That's not a
3: legislative action at a state level. Typically what would happen is the pharmaceutical manufacturer might might make that initiation, if you will. Oftentimes it's when it goes generic, because at that point in time, big pharma has squeezed the blood out of that turnip. So they're ready to, okay, wow, well, you know, it's no longer our drug. Okay. Now we've got four different companies making it. So at that point in time it frequently will be driven that way. But we've had I mean, you gotta look at the medical system here. In America, for decades, we've been able to hold women hostage to the medical environment. We can force women to come in and get a $400 a year physical and pap smear that if you look at the data, doesn't provide much measure, much value for them. But that's the only way they get their prescription refilled. When you do that, it's not just the cost of the birth control. Now it's also the, prescri- the, phys- the physical. We have countries across the planet That have been having over the counter birth control pills for years, but not in this country. We need to stop the hypocrisy and say, what are we doing? Do we think that women in America are not up to the level of decision making that women in Europe are? These are the kinds of things that nobody wants to say. And for whatever reason, I'm here, Jeff. I don't feel like I have a political career to protect. I feel like as a family doctor in the trenches, I can speak to some of these issues with both a certain amount of expertise and experience, but also with a bit of a, I don't give a damn kind of attitude. If you don't want to hear it, turn the radio off.
1: We obviously want to hear it because we wanted to have you back on. I was, regarding State Central, I was disappointed with the action.
2: Can you can you set the table a little bit yeah. for, for people... The vast, vast majority of people who have never been to a State Central meeting, those lovely, normal people?
1: So there's a variety of organizational units inside the Republican Party of Minnesota and inside the DFL. State Central is, for lack of a better phrase, perceived to be the business body, the governing body of the Republican Party of Minnesota. There was a meeting on Saturday of the State Central Committee meeting in Elk River. It's a few hundred people. And as I was not there... I don't believe I don't believe you were there, but there was a resolution that was proposed to censure you for your comments about abortion that you've made uh, just recently as you have been post uh, post election comments. The resolution, as I understand it, did not proceed, did not go to a full vote, but it was dismissed on a procedural motion that was made, which is disappointing because the fact that number one, there's a there's an element of the party that wants to go so far and to police you as you are right now for your thoughts about where the party should go, to me just also shows how backwards the party is right now in some in many ways. Because I do believe if I didn't believe there was value to the party operation and to conservatives and to the Republican agenda and also to Republicans winning statewide, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. Because I think it's there's value. I think that this is significant. I think that this is important. And so to hear Republicans shut out someone or attempt to shut out someone who's trying to help have a difficult conversation that they need to accept is just frustrating to me. So I think my question to Scott Jensen then is
2: knowing that that group exists, knowing that there is at least some subset of people who are what you would what some people would call the core of the Republican Party, who want to go so far as to say, Scott Jensen, how dare you even have these opinions? How do you move forward? How does the Republican Party move forward to where you want it to go, knowing that that group exists?
3: It's a good question. And I'd probably take a step backwards before I try to answer it. Perhaps the first question I would want asked is, Scott, what was the most compelling reason that you decided to initiate this discussion in late June, a one-year anniversary from Roe v. Wade being overturned? Well, let me give you a news break. It wasn't the delegates. I mean, I knew that this would really put me on the hot seat. The people who pushed me to speak to the issue, were independents who felt forced to vote for the Democrat candidate. These were people who said, we believe a lot of the things you're saying, Scott, about fiscal responsibility and what's happening to our children, and will more money solve the ills that seem to beleaguer our public education system? They felt they had no choice. They said, you need to have a conversation. Whether you ever engage in politics again, Scott, you're... Strong enough, you're successful enough, and you're old enough that you can have the conversation. And if you need to be the sacrificial lamb, then please do it. So, with that being, if you will, the foundational reason for why I did this, I would say that the way the Republican Party goes forward is we have got to recognize our roots. And our roots aren't declared by someone who decides to holler rhino the loudest. Our roots are based on... What did Reagan do when he got things going in the 1980s? I always think of Reagan as standing for faith and family and freedom. He, he respected the wisdom of the founding fathers and he spoke to that frequently. He talked about the value of less government. He made jokes about the government showing up at your doorstep saying they're here to help, talking about how that's an oxymoron. He talked about the fact that if we want peace, we have to be strong. You don't get peace by begging Russia or the Soviet Union for it or China. He talked about individual liberties being something that can never be allowed to be, if you will, nibbled at at the edges in a slow way because that's how we lose our rights. And he also spoke to the value of America's always been a country that's been willing to celebrate exceptionalism wherever we see it. We don't have to be the source of the exceptionalism if in some European country, they come up with the way to do fusion so that we can get clean energy through the nuclear process that we all hold out there. Hallelujah. Let's celebrate it and let's get on with reducing the potential adverse impacts of fossil fuels on our climate and climate change around the world. This is what we need to do. And Republicans have never been the party of groupthink, but we sure behave that way. And when the state central committee says they're going to censure me because I had the guts to say, hey, let's have a conversation. I would say this. Let's re-inject the word independent back into the Republican Party. We had it for 20 years from 75 to 95. Maybe it's time for the Republican Party to once again be the independent Republican Party, because right now we've got a losing streak of 30 in a row. And frankly, the future does not look bright.
1: The, uh, for those listening, the IR was added post-Watergate to distinguish themselves from the Nixon administration. And I was at the Republican State Convention in Mankato in 1995, where future, where presidential candidate Phil Graham spoke, who was uh, hot on the trail, former United States senator from the state of Texas, that is where the Republican State Central Committee met, state convention met in Mankato in 95 to drop the IR. There used to be these famous bumper stickers that said, I think, therefore, IR. Okay, Boomer. And so, I want to ask you about that uh, that dialogue and that conversation. After you submitted your op-ed, and after our interview, just in the last couple of days, your running mate had a, had an op-ed advocating a, a wake-up call to the Democrats. In essence, embrace who you are. Give people choice. If you are pro-choice, give people uh, and advocating for adoption. Have you and Matt Burke? bonked heads at all? Or do you disagree a bit on this message or this conversation that we need to have in the party? And where are you two at? And is there, is, are you two, are your complementary forces? Are you competing with each other? Where do you think that lead is going?
3: Good question. Yeah, Matt called me on last week and said that he had a commentary coming out and he said, I think it's going to be, they're going to, there's going to be an effort to try to spin it such that it's Scott versus Matt. And he said, that's not what I'm about at all. And I said, absolutely. And I had not read the commentary at that time. I read it, and I see it as complimentary. I do too. I I see it as he's he's basically—it's almost a matter of emphasis. I'm saying—and I think my perspective is understandable as a family doctor who has seen women become pregnant because there was a gap in their ability to get their birth control pill. I I certainly am sensitized, and I'm really about— the healthcare and solutions. So the idea for me to be advocating for increased education, natural family planning, birth control, post-morning after pills, all that, that's sensible and it makes sense. Matt Burke, on the other hand, his perspective has been, let's do everything we can to streamline adoption. Uh, let's make certain that regardless of what a person decides, that they really feel supported either way. And I think Matt was in in his commentary saying that it seems like, There's not an interest in making certain that this person who's in dealing with an unanticipated pregnancy is really being shown both sides of it. And so I thought Matt's commentary did a nice job of piggybacking on top of my own. And I think both Matt and I are personally powerfully pro-life. But I think on a policy perspective, I've been a strong advocate that we need to step back and reconsider. And I think Matt's saying that may be so, but from his perspective, he wants to make sure that someone's calling out those persons who might not be allowing as much of a supportive sensibility to touch their lives at a very stressful point in their lives.
1: No, I agree with you. I thought that the op-ed complimented your message i had a number of people send it to me right away and say look they're fighting they're fighting and i didn't read it that way i read it as it's something that matt Berg has always been very passionate about adoption and it seemed that he was taking the opportunity in the space of the abortion to conversation that you wanted to have that you were leading on to have there be a space where we don't forget about choice and one of those choices is adoption and we need to be an advocate for that. So I thought it was a, a complimentary message. I didn't think it was inconsistent from what you were saying and I don't think that put the two of you I think someone who read both of them honestly and candidly would come to the conclusion that they were complimentary not in competition with each other.
3: I think so. I think it's important for people to recognize that I wrote my commentary entirely independent of Matt Burke and he wrote his entirely independent of Scott Jensen. I think that in my commentary Had he had a chance to wordsmith it, I'm going to guess he would have revised some wording and I would do the same. I think that one of the challenges for the Republican Party as we talk about this issue is we need to understand that there have been decades and decades of sensitivities built up. And I think it's so easy to use language. And I've been guilty of this. I've slipped. Sometimes I didn't even realize it was happening. But we have to be careful to not be presumptuous, to not presume that we can feel or understand how someone else's feel. And I know that if I were ever to engage in the political arena again as a candidate, I know that I have to be ever, ever so careful to not presume because it's just so easy to get trapped. And, And I know I've been guilty of that.
1: I want to circle back to the candidacy aspect, but I want to give Becky an opportunity to chime in here.
0: Yeah, I guess I, I'm I'm filling a role today of of playing devil's advocate, but I did have a little bit of a different take on this op-ed. Um, I am all about making sure that that women, anybody in a situation considering abortion, should absolutely have options, have, be be educated on on the different variety of options that are in front of them. But there were a couple lines that I thought were a little, I will say aggressive, uh, towards pro-choice individuals and and maybe I took that as a little bit on the defense because I feel like I fall into this but a couple of the lines I want to read out real quick say it seems like all I hear about the pro-choice side is talk about abortion taxpayer-funded abortion on demand no restriction no parental notification if a minor wants to have an abortion chemical abortion abortion on at the time during a pregnancy up to the moment of birth goes on and on and on and then it ends with to the pro-choice people you are not our enemy which I do appreciate that line you are not our enemy, but please be honest and don't call yourself pro-choice or pro woman Your actions say you are pro-abortion. I disagree with that on its face. I don't believe I am pro-abortion. I believe that women should have that choice should they need that choice, and it should be in front of them. I Like I said, starting out, I do believe they should be educated on the – I have a sister who got pregnant at a young age who who g- gave her baby up for adoption, and it was to a lovely family who were unable to have children. I am so grateful and appreciative that she was able to do that, and she was educated in the ability of that path forward for her. I do believe that um, – I just personally think that uh, pro-choice does not equal pro-abortion, and I believe that that is, is a big theme in this of – Being one and the same, and that was something I just felt a little, maybe read a little differently.
3: Becky, I probably am being politically naive and perhaps a bit foolish by commenting on your comment because I could probably pass on it. But I think, I think you pulled out of that commentary a few words that do deserve to be explored a bit, and I don't, I don't disagree with you at all in regards to the possible implication that pro-choice people are pro-abortion. I don't think that's fair. I think that in Kansas last August, the reason the potential ban did not pass was not because pro-life people all of a sudden became pro-abortion people. It was because pro-life people felt that they wanted to not impose their view on others that might take away their choice. And so I would agree
1: with you. You've mentioned this a couple of times about being a candidate and being a sacrificial lamb as if you are. And I think it's fair to say that you are taking some very bold positions, particularly in an arena where people are generally pretty cautious about their moves and their calculations. That being said, I do think, and I've said this when we interviewed the first time, and I'll say it to you again, there is tremendous value to what you're doing right now but I don't pretend that's not coming at a personal expense. But in that is simultaneously, I'm trying to accept that reality of what politics is, but it's also disappointing to me that we have to have sacrificial lambs that we have to have people that we're so afraid to have these conversations and this discussion. Do you think that the activists inside the party are prepared with enough information about this issue to debate it fully in the context of not only the medical realities, the legislative realities, but also the political realities of where they are. I want to keep going back to the discussion that we've touched on before is how smart are the activists sometimes in the party? And we want to give this impression that they're all knowing. We don't want to diminish their experiences and their life experiences, but activists don't, in my opinion, have sometimes make the, they don't factor in the right issues when they're choosing on who they want to endorse. And I do think that there is a mindset of the activists to listen to who can serve up the most red meat, not whether that person can get across the finish line. And so on this issue of abortion, on this discussion that I think, I know that I believe the party wants needs to have, and I think many here agree the party needs to have, do you think the activists are prepared to have it? Because I look at the conversation that we had as being incredibly thoughtful, incredibly important, but yet I see what happens on Saturday, and I'm just annoyed by it. I'm bothered by it because I think it's, we have someone here who's taking a couple steps forward. And we as a party, there's still desires to take us a couple steps back. So, Michael,
2: I, I guess I don't want to, I would be the last person on earth to defend uh, delegates um, or activists. However, I think it is interesting that emotion was put forward and. The motion was killed on procedural grounds. It did not pass. If the motion passed, I think we would we would be in a much different position. But as you know from going through these conventions, it it only takes a handful of kooks to be able to create a distraction or to you know to get a resolution put forward. Is really not there. There's not a there's not a high threshold to have that conversation.
1: So you're saying, in essence, the fact that it was offered shouldn't be surprising, but the fact that it w- didn't proceed to a full debate, I should almost accept that that's progress. I don't know that I
2: would call it good news. It but would certainly be better if it didn't happen at correct. All, right? However, the fact that it didn't pass, and who knows if it would have passed. I mean, that, that, I, I, that would have been a really interesting, you know, I almost wish that they had taken a vote on it so that we could have seen where we are. But I guess... um Again, I'm not cutting delegates any slack whatsoever, and I'm certainly not going to defend them in any way. But I will say that rather than debating uh, maybe their intelligence, which I'd be happy to do at any point, I think what you can say definitively is that the people who are elected at these conventions and go forward and endorse these candidates are not representative of in, of a course the general public, but I do not believe that they are representative of the center-right populace that is, that would consider themselves not Democrats.
3: Let me jump in on that. I think on the Democratic side, I think they've demonstrated that because if you look at Dayton and Walls, both not having gotten the endorsement yet in the primary when for every delegate, there were a th- almost a thousand um, non-delegate Democrat voters that decided that Mark Dayton and Tim Wall should be the candidate and they went on to be victorious. So I think in the Democratic side of the equation, we've seen that happen. On the Republican side of the equation, we haven't. And I think, Michael, you made that point last time, I think, was it? I think perhaps Alan Quist in 1994 had the endorsement and Arnie, not 94? Yep. Yeah. And then Al, And then uh, Arnie Carlson was able to win easily in the primary. I think we need to be careful when you talk about Delegates and activists, because I think it's too easy to be unfair. Nobody likes to be generalized or, if you will, uh, stereotyped. I think there are there are many activists that are not delegates, and um, but it's probably true that virtually all delegates are activists about something. I think a fair amount of the delegates understand the very difficult conclusion that. When Reagan said something like, if you've got someone, you disagree with 20% of the time, you don't have an enemy. You you don't have a 20% enemy. You got an, you got an ally. That's hard. There's no question. There are some delegates that come to the table with a purity test, whether it's guns or abortion. It might be education. It might be what we're doing with kids. It might be mental health. It might be this or that, but an awful lot come, uh, feeling entrusted with the responsibility to help make the best choice possible you mentioned earlier Jeff and I didn't specifically respond then but you made some comment about that every candidate should you know sort of be booed if they lose I uh, I would I would say that's that's not true I think that there are times where candidates run and they know full well they will lose I don't know who's going to run for the Republican Party against Amy Klobuchar in 2024 but uh it would be uh difficult for me to imagine that they would actually go into that race thinking they're going to win. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't. But I, I think that there's more to being a candidate than winning. There is that very real responsibility, challenge, and opportunity to shape the conversation and what the issues that are raised during the campaign might be. And I think in the same way, when if you lose, You might still have an opportunity to play a role in helping shape those conversations. And I think that's the biggest reason why I'm in in this podcast with you is because you have given me the chance to help continue to maybe give a little shape. And if the shape I'm encouraging is uncomfortable for some, that's where I'm fine with being that sacrificial lamb. I'm not doing this to be some way out there kind of person. I think that what I'm saying is absolutely what we need to be talking about in order for conservatives who believe that the Constitution needs to be the absolute recipe for how we govern ourselves. And I feel like that hasn't happened. And so when, when people get upset about Roe v. Wade being overturned, I say, this Supreme Court didn't find in the Constitution the basis for personhood or the basis for the Roe v. Wade jurisprudence that they went through when that decision was made. We've had liberals and conservatives on the Supreme Court for the last 50 years say the same thing. The court in 2022 didn't like their timing, but they simply came out and did what probably is a very logical thing. And they said, it's going back to the States. Now we've got Republicans saying, oh, no, don't do that. We need to have a federal ban. You've got thoughtful Republican presidential candidates like Chris Christie and many others saying, this is what we advocated for. This is what we asked for. Right now, we had the abominable situation occur in Ohio last week where we had a Republican legislature that had said, we're not going to have any elections in August because the turnout is poor and we don't really get a representative sampling of the people. They said that in 2022. So come 2023, when the people rise up and say, we want a populist vote on a ballot initiative on abortion access. And the Republican legislature says, oh, no, you don't. We're going to make the threshold necessary for that to happen go from 50% to 60%. And we're going to have that initiative run in August, three months before yours runs. And we're going to do exactly what we said we wouldn't do. We're going to do it when it'll be low turnout and we can win this. They basically created the situation where a minority can be tyrannical over a majority. The Republican Party should be ashamed of what happened. It's another data point
1: to me that Republicans don't know where to go on abortion right now. My question to you is, can a Republican win statewide in Minnesota being pro-life?
3: I think you can be personally pro-life and you can be upfront that from a policy perspective, you understand that safe, legal, and rare is a reasonable place to be. I think that the governor of Minnesota does not need to be uh, the person who leads that. I think that, frankly, it should be the people. I think that if you try to pass a constitutional amendment in Minnesota saying that abortion without restriction to the day of delivery, I think that fails. But if you pass for the first 15 weeks with exceptions for rape, incest, and the health of the mother being endangered— I think that passes easily.
1: Do you think if a Republican were to campaign on, set aside the constitutional amendment for a second, set aside any other kind of statewide initiative, but just talk about a candidate running? Candidates running for governor in 2026, and they want to campaign, they want to run on undoing some of the legislative advancement that Democrats have made and signed into law related to abortion. Do you think that candidate can win statewide? Do you think rolling back any, endorse, any abortion laws that have been advanced by the DFL legislature, this legislature this past session, if a Republican campaigned on undoing some of those, do you think that would be a sellable message statewide?
3: Absolutely. The idea of having parental notification, that's a very reasonable thing. What we're doing right now is when young people are in a situation they've never been in before. And the fact that we're Literally taking away parental rights. We're not just taking away parental rights, we're taking away those. Champions for that 14 or 16 year old young lady uh, who have been there side by side for their whole life and saying, "Oh, go it alone, make your decision." That may be what that person thinks that, that young person thinks they want at that time, but that's a horrible thing to do some to someone. It's no different than taking a 15 year old saying, "You can go ahead and have a mastectomy because you want to have gender affirming care." This is, this is a horrific thing we're doing. Kids need parents. Parents have rights. Parents are held responsible for their kids until their kids are at the age of majority. What we've done regarding parental rights isn't really supportive of kids. It might feel that way for young people, but quite frankly, that's horrific. And you could run on that and roll that back. Does
1: one of the, one of the, and I'd be curious what the group thinks, but I'm going to pivot it to you first for, for the answer. Does do pro-life, do Republican candidates who want to lead with abortion, want to leave with lead with being pro-life, and it's their number one issue, do they make the space, do they taint the political waters for candidates like you who now want to have a more nuanced, thoughtful position? Because w- without identifying any other, I don't want to disparage anyone by saying their name or their political beliefs, but if you get a candidate that decides to come out and say, I... Believe in abortion only for the exceptions of rape, incest, life, of the mother. Those are, those certainly is in stark contrast to what's legal here today. Does And when we have candidates out there talking and using some language about abortion, that is uh, unthoughtful or unproductive. does You mean like
3: using the word murder? Yeah. I think that works against us horrifically. That should stop. Absolutely. It was interesting. I read an interview. Donald Trump said something about... He's not sure where he's at right now on the abortion issue in terms of federal bans and all kinds of, I mean, you're seeing a tap dance done by all these candidates, but he made a comment that was interesting and I think is compelling. If you are going to run in 2026 as a Republican, promoting, rolling back some of what's been done, and yet acknowledging that safe, legal, and rare at some level has to be preserved, I think that... What Trump said the other day, uh, it, it was a while ago, he made the comment about, he was con, con, he was he uh, found it compelling that at approximately 15 weeks, quite a bit of the research indicates that a, a growing fetus may feel pain. I think that's compelling. I think if a Republican wanted to come out and say, listen, there's this data point, this data point, this data point that shows that a 15 to 20 week fetus pulled apart by the limbs feels the pain of being exterminated and said, let's do this and offered a first trimester and offered also the means by which we can make abortion a less necessary consideration. Absolutely advocated for subsidizing the cost of birth control pills so that women don't have to pay a thing, that we we take that on as a society. We have barrier contraceptives available. We have the morning after pill available. We streamline adoption. We look at both the solution side, but also trying to make it a less necessary consideration. I think that person could not only win, I think they could help others win. But I think if you're going to come out and use some of the polarizing language that's been used and try to take away the opportunity, especially the first 10 weeks. I mean, right now, I know nobody wants to hear this in the Republican side if they're really, I shouldn't say it that way. I know a lot of people don't want to hear this. But in the first 10 weeks, the great majority of abortions are done without any procedure involved at all. It's being done with two medications taken a couple of days apart. If we've got presidential candidate over and over again saying 12 weeks, 15 weeks, 90% of abortions I think are done in the first 10 weeks. I, I think I'm just hoping, Michael, Jeff, Becky, that we can have this conversation I if someone thinks that this is good for our country and that we should lower the priority level of safety and education and economic decisions and sustainable fiscal policies and push them to the side because this issue should take all the oxygen in the room, then you know, we're just on different pages.
1: If the if there are two candidates running right now for the statewide endorsement, and this I don't want to people can chime in if they agree or disagree, but if someone got up and said that abortion is murder, or if someone said abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, I have a feeling that the candidate who called abortion murder would get endorsed. And the truth of the matter is that I think the party needs to have a mature conversation about this.
2: Well, I think again, we can have, we could have a debate about delegates all day long. And I've got lots of opinions on that, that nobody wants to hear. But I think the undeniable, the undeniable data point is that delegates have not picked a candidate who has won a statewide race in many, many years. And th- that's, that's just a data point that can't be refuted. You can do all sorts of what ifs and oh yeah, but whatever's, but the bottom line is they haven't. And I think you're absolutely right. I think given those two statements, two people who stood there, uh, I have no doubt where the delegates would go. And that's why I think from a candidate selection standpoint, Republicans need to be on the same page with Democrats, which is if you want to endorse people, I guess that's fine. But at the end of the day, you let a broader swath of the public decide who's going to be the candidate. And we run real primary races and the state party stays out of it until you have a winner of a primary. And we actually let these things happen
1: that is one aspect of the interview that I think there was universal acceptance at least from the people that I spoke with that your comment about the party staying out until the primary was a fantastic idea and I think that might end up being a model that some people embrace because it still acknowledges the party's role but they don't they're not spending resources on an inner mural contest. When our job should be getting candidates over the finish line.
3: And I think it also allows candidates to not only allows, it almost demands that a candidate be a little bit more farsighted. I think sometimes it's so easy to be nearsighted. And again, I know people have been critical saying that, well, you you shouldn't be saying things during an endorsement campaign if you don't absolutely true blue, you know. have them represented as your conviction. I'm sorry, folks. There's a lot of rhetoric that goes on out there in a political campaign. We're seeing it right now. We're seeing reports about DeSantis trying to outflank Trump on the right on the abortion issue, and then you've got the Second Amendment issue coming in. Folks, we got to get real. If if we really care about the Constitution and fiscal responsibility, there's got to be room for fiscal conservatives and social liberals. In the Republican Party, or we don't win.
1: Have you speaking of the presidential race, are you supporting a presidential candidate right now? Where's your head on the candidates that are in the race right now?
3: Just fascinated. Watching and listening. <laughs> yep, that's it.
1: Okay. The discussion on abortion, you're seeing some similarities because I've noticed it since our conversation. The similarities where it seems that everyone's trying to out outflank, as you would say, on that issue. And if it's not a successful strategy for Republicans in Minnesota, is it a successful strategy for Republicans to win the presidency?
3: You're way smarter on that than me.
1: I do want to lend to your medical. And I thought about this just before I came in. I want to lend to your medical, your medical expertise. Do you think if you're a candidate running for president, that there should be cognitive tests if you're running for president? And the reason I bring that up is this. We have, there's, Very likelihood, at least from my perspective, and I'll give it to others to have a discussion, is that I think it's likely going to be Biden and Trump. And you're going to have someone over 80 and near 80 when the election comes around next time. Nikki Haley has talked about there being some cognitive tests and some tests that someone does when they're running for president. I thought about, from your perspective, as a doctor, do you think that's
3: appropriate? (laughs) I would love to tell you yes. I would love to say that we would be able to do such and such a test or whatever in a fair and level manner, but I don't think we can. I really don't. I think our Supreme Court has had some of its public trust nibbled away at the edges. And I, I watch doctors and, boy, I tell you, we may be good at biology and chemistry, but sometimes we're dumber than rocks when it comes to understanding social and political implications. I don't I don't think medicine could do it, so I would have to say no. I think that the question for me would be, could we actually have some sort of carrot in front of the candidates where if they would participate in a certain number of debates— so that the public could make an assessment about the cognitive capabilities of an individual in the middle of a live debate. So perhaps you could say, if you're willing to sign on to five debates, you'll get this level of support or whatever, And if you're not willing to, and your opponent is, then your opponent is going to be debated by the press or someone, and they get your share of it, regardless of how they fare in the debate. But I think we'd have to go that way. But the idea of an arbitrary testing of cognitive capabilities—I have some patients who can't remember names worth beans, but they can— read maps and see three-dimensional figures and articulate and write chapters and essays like no tomorrow. So I I would love to tell you, Michael, that I have an easy answer there, but I think we better keep the doctors out of it because I don't think we're up to the task. Our profession has got to, we've got to do some healing ourselves and we got to get better because I think we've given the public good reason to question who we are.
1: And and you make a great point. Jeff is in his mid Mid forties, and he and virtually
3: mi- demented. You were going to say, yeah, and
1: misdiagnose and miss misassessed that he was a Gen Z, and it's just frustrating that he. Let's so not. We let's, can't do that
3: for what can we expect? Jeff, for- did you remember my middle name? See, uh, case in point. Yeah, yeah, right, right there. Right. Yeah. yeah, I want
1: to give everyone an opportunity to speak here before we wrap things up, but I'm going to go first this time. I went last time. I go first this time. I want to thank you again for coming in. I have been. This has been, without a doubt, the trajectory of this podcast, after including you in, has been simply remarkable. And I want to thank you for your willingness to come in and talk, to be honest, to be candid, to participate in this space. This is why, without ever thinking that this was why I wanted to get into podcasting, this is why I did, was to have conversations. And you've been such a critical part of that. And for you to come in and to be so candid and be so generous with your time is just really appreciative. I really appreciate it and i just want to thank you on a professional and personal level for being willing to do that and i want you to know independent of how these next comments go you're always welcome in here to have a conversation and discussion and there's a lot more that i want to talk about with you at some point about other issues and you're always available you have a standing invitation to come back here and have that conversation and if there's stuff that appears online or you want to come in for a quick rebuttal i want you to know you have that space because i've really appreciated and I don't mean to disparage any other guests we have, probably more than any other guest. This has been a surprise for me on just on a personal and professional level. It's meant a lot. I've enjoyed the conversations where they've gone and the candor and the opportunity to get to know you. I will say to you that I like this Scott Jensen. I really do. And I'm it means a lot to have these conversations. And that's really surprising because there's a caricature of people that develop on the campaigns. And I've learned a lot from listening to you in these conversations. I just wanted to say that, again, on just a personal and professional level, how much I've appreciated this. And I hope you know that this is a space you can always come back and have conversations, even when we disagree. Because there's a lot that I was thinking as we were talking, opportunities that I think down the road we should talk more about. But I just wanted to say that to begin with.
3: Well, thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate that. I've said many times to people they'll say, what drives you to participating in politics? And I've said, 4.14, and they look at me. What do you mean by that? And I said, well, Exodus 4.14 speaks of God's anger smoldering because Moses had just turned down the job. God wasn't happy. Then you go to Esther 4.14, and it speaks of, for such a time as this, maybe you're in the position you're in. And then you go to John and Jesus says, well, if you drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst because it'll become in you something totally different. And then if you go to, I think it's Ephesians, it says something in 4.14, we don't have to be like children being tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of cunning and deceitful people. And then if we go to Hebrews, we finish up with, hold fast to the beliefs you profess. I've been given a wonderful opportunity to be able to articulate the beliefs I profess. I've had a chance to see my thinking evolved. I've had the embarrassment of not thinking deeply enough about some of the critical issues I might face as a governor's candidate in advance, because we had never had to do that before. We could just check the box. But that backstop went away when Roe v. Wade got overturned. And so, quite frankly, it was all on me. And if I decide to do something in the future, I'll do more of this kind of thing. But I know that I will be more, more thoughtful and I will I think I'll be less naive. And and it is important to be confronted. One of my greatest disappointments about the campaign with Tim Walls was the fact that we didn't get to have more of those debates because when I debated Tim Walls, I learned from him. I, I grew from him, and I was hoping that he might also be able to say the same about interfacing with me. And so it's it's been a good process, and uh, I have no regrets uh, in regards to running. I have some regrets that I wasn't a better candidate.
1: Jeff,
2: Becky? Becky, go for it.
0: I just wanted to echo what Michael said. I think it has been really intriguing, interesting conversations. Um, One thing that I have always strived to do in politics since, you know, my time of getting involved in, in high school and college to now is to have open dialogue and to have productive conversations with both folks I disagree with and agree with. And I think having that has helped shape who who i am what i believe in and and the way i message and and speak on issues and i think it's really important for folks to hear all the sides and and hopefully hear them in an accessible way that maybe makes them think and reconsider their stance um maybe not Uh, convince them they're wrong, but just give them insight into a different uh, way of thinking. And I think that's certainly something that you have done uh, in both of these interviews. And I'm grateful for that because I think it's something that folks need to have access to civil conversations that aren't playing the guilt trip, but just simply offering a different viewpoint um, and and leaving it open-ended and saying, please consider this you're not. You don't have to be wrong. You can have your views, but but this is why there's another option out there. Um, and and I think that is is a hard place to be. And especially as somebody who has had the following and and support you have from from the delegates, the activists, and and Republicans statewide, I I commend you for for taking that role on and and look forward to future conversations as well.
2: Jeff. I would just like to finish by pointing out that Pew Research defines uh, millennials as people oh, who were born between the years of 1981 and 1996, and I am outside of that range. So uh,
1: I need, need you release term, your I need your release your birth certificate,
2: uh, short form, long form.
1: Uh, I need to see long form and short form it, and, and uh, we're gonna have to see that.
2: Okay, I just wanted to additionally point out that the word millennial. Refers to the fact that it was people who graduated high school in the year two thousand, around the turn of the millennium, and I graduated mm-hmm. high school very,
1: very firmly in the nineteen nineties. We'll have to revisit this on a future episode. I do have a future episode in mind um, that I think we should discuss, but we're going to discuss it off air because I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't never. I don't ever want to surprise people on air with an idea. But uh, <laughs> something we'll came. Tell to, you. Something came to we'll me, you and, how and, great and, it was and we'll air. we'll discuss it off air.
2: Well, I look, I look forward to finding out what trouble we're going to get into uh, when this one comes out. So
1: it should be fun. I hope you keep fighting, Dr. Jensen. I hope you do. And uh, I just, you and I have exchanged a couple of text messages and I just, I really do hope that you get that lane to keep the dialogue going. And I know that's something that, that Becky and I believe very strongly in. Jeff sometimes distracts from that message, but something we believe in very strongly in and you've really helped manifest kind of the mission of what we wanted to do. So thank you for being a part of that. You're very welcome. Thank you. Why don't we go around the horn? We just had uh, Doctor Scott Jensen in for a second interview. Give him, give me your thoughts.
0: I mean, I I have to say, you know, I think that we kind of said this in closing. I I have to imagine. Well, you know, I know he got some support. He got people reached out supportive of the interview and subsequent interviews he's done. I have to imagine he's heard some 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 gotten some backlash gotten some negative emails phone calls text messages all of the the sort and that he wanted to continue down this path that he's not didn't come out say these things and and called it a done deal that he wants to continue to have this conversation that he's continuing to stand behind his op-ed what he said on our first initial podcast um and wanting to continue that conversation down I, I think you ha- you have to applaud him for that.
2: Jeff. You know, I think um, I, I think we're probably going to get in a little less trouble than we did last time. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, the last interview was maybe a tad more explosive, but I think this was a good conversation. And, and again, to Becky's point, it would have been really easy to just kind of stick your head under the, mm-hmm. the sand or whatever, and just, and not continue mm-hmm. the conversation. But um, you know, It seems like Scott Jensen wants to continue to be part of the conversation, and I I guess as someone who, as of a few weeks ago, was really interested in him um, shutting up and going away, uh, it's interesting that having listened to him that I'm kind of in the position of wanting to hear a little bit more about what he has to say. I, I don't know if he can... Honestly, I don't know if anyone can. I don't know if it's heal the wound or, um, or close the gap or what the right analogy is. But I, but I think we've got, we've got unresolved issues nationally and in Minnesota specifically around the topic of abortion, and then some of these other topics too, as in how a political party is going to select their candidates and what and what we should be doing, um, and what that process should look like. And so I think, you know, what, who should have a voice in that conversation? And I I think it's understandable to say Scott Jensen should not because I'm annoyed with him and he's the reason we lost this and he's the reason we lost the legislature and whatever. And I think that's, again, that's understandable and, and a fair position. However, um, the Scott Jensen who's come to this podcast twice now and had reasonable conversations with us is somebody I do want to be part of the conversation. I, I don't want to hear, you know, to go back to a point we made in the interview, I, I don't want to hear about how he led the league in doubles in the month of August, right? I, I don't want to hear all these niche stupid, I got more votes in Goodhue County than any other candidate before me since 1963 kind of boasting but if i want to hear yeah i said stupid things so i could get endorsed and that's a dumb process um maybe i mean it it would be good if people would be willing to hear that i'm skeptical that they want to hear that message though
1: i agree with points you both made first of all to becky's point i want to give him credit for number one agreeing to do the interview the first time but then coming back for the second, I think I wanted to, and I think we all wanted to, the reason why I wanted to have him back on again was to have a conversation about the conversation that we had. I think the reaction, I think we all knew in the room when we were conducting the first interview with him that what he was saying was significant, historical, important, and was going to create waves. I think we were all surprised a bit by the amount of waves that it created and the opportunities for further discussion that it created. We wanted, I think, to give Dr. Jensen an opportunity to come back and do a recap of that interview, decompress a little bit and break it down a bit more, and talk about both what was said, the reaction, and where we go forward. I'm glad we did the first interview. I'm absolutely glad we did the second interview. And I think the subject material warranted a follow-up conversation. To Jeff's point, I am in the same position that he has on Scott Jensen. I think that A number of people wanted him to exit the stage as quickly as possible after the election. I, in fact, think I wrote that on social media that he should exit the stage as quickly as possible. But he has got a lot to say right now. And if our podcast can be one of the platforms by which people can feel comfortable coming in and talking, we're going to give that space. I think we should do it. And I'm incredibly proud of the first interview, incredibly proud of the second interview. And I don't know if the. Republican delegates are prepared, as Scott Jensen is, for to be introspective and to look inside themselves and to figure out how they can do things different. I do know that I think, I do believe that the conversation is important. It needs to happen. And I hope it continues to happen. And I think we have a responsibility to help it along. Because I think the party will be in a better place if we all, if all activists and all party officers were as introspective in analyzing what they could have done better this past election cycle to win. And Scott Jensen should be complimented for being very bravely, strongly, and passionately being the first in line to accept responsibility. And that should be rewarded in politics. And in saying that, I also need to recognize that I don't need to amend my answer about political candidates leaving the stage. If political candidates want to be, if losing political candidates want to be as introspective as Scott Jensen has created the opportunity for them to be, then they should stick around. If they're going to offer some of the glib analysis, as Jeff referenced, which is getting doubles in the month of August as a selling point, then it's not interested. And we're not going to grow that way. On multiple levels, I agree with points you all made, and I'm glad that we gave Scott Jensen another opportunity to come in and we're gonna have him in again to talk about some other subjects. But I'm glad that we were the genesis for this conversation to start.
0: Um, so question and and I didn't get a chance to to chat about this during the interview. Um, but I've been kind of thinking over why we don't get more introspection from candidates post post loss. Um and and all I've kind of come to is is it kind of is a mode of self-preservation. A lot of these candidates I feel like are holding the door open to run again and often have an opportunity to try to shift that blame, right? Like we we again just saw this recently for with with Ron DeSantis. He did another reshuffling of staff, heads are rolling, you know, axed a third, a fourth or half of his staff, um, and and is just Shifting that blame. It was my staff. That's the reason that we're not succeeding right now. Let's do this. I kind of feel as though that's why we don't hear this from a lot of candidates because they want to be able to run again and say, I was given bad advice. It was the environment. It was my staff, even though everybody, including themselves, likely most times understand that they need to accept some of that. I think what's most interesting in this situation is we're hearing this from Jensen. And he hasn't closed the door to running again. So I want to put you both on the spot real quick. If the election was this upcoming year in 2024 for governor, do you think in, you know, eight, nine months when the the next uh, endorsement process was going, do you think Jensen would even have a shot at the Republican Party endorsement um, for, for governor with saying what he has been saying and continuing down this line of messaging?
1: Jeff, you want to go first or do you want me to take it? Uh-
2: my answer is pretty easy and short. I I don't know. I, I I don't know. My gut says no. Um but you know, I people do respond to authenticity. Um I I think part of the part of the problem Jensen will have going forward from a political standpoint is going to be the kind of uh what's the kind of classic on the witness stand question, right? Were you were you lying then or are you lying mm-hmm. now? Um so there there's a little bit of a question of who is the real Jensen, but I think anyone who followed Jensen's career prior to him running to governor knows that the real Jensen is much more the guy that we've been talking to the last few weeks and not the guy who was out there saying these kind of ridiculous things. So uh, it's, so I think that, and that's part of why I think Jensen fell short is that, you know, kind of like when Marco Rubio uh, decided to go on the attack for those couple of weeks and it just, it just doesn't fit his personality. Right. And so when Scott Jensen was saying things that you could tell he didn't really believe, but those were the kind of things that he had to say, because that's the stage he was on. Um, that's why it didn't sell as well. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess I said that was going to be a short answer. And then I talked for three minutes. But go ahead, Michael. Sorry,
1: I won't. I won't preface my remarks by saying that it's going to be a short answer, but it might be. Um, I w- would like to believe that there is a space for a candidate who can be as transparent and honest about who they are and where the party needs to go. I think Scott Jensen, I will say to you, I think Scott Jensen wants to run. I think he has it in him to run again, meaning I think he wants to run again. And by all accounts, I think he is. Uh, I think it's part of the reason he's shaping this conversation and wants to be a part of the conversation. That being said, to be fair and to be a realist, it is important for candidates when they're running for office to know who they are. And I think this journey that Scott Jensen is going on publicly, podcasts and interviews, I think is also he is learning about who he is and who he is as a candidate and what he, where, what he believes. And I absolutely would like to believe that there is enough space inside the party for someone to be personally pro-life, but understand the political realities of the, the state and that it's difficult to be a pro-life candidate to the extreme in which Republicans want you to be and get elected statewide. Um, I do not think the campaign trail is a place for people to figure out who they are and to kick the tires. I think you have to have a core set of values and beliefs and you have to be able to answer the question. Jeff's analogy about the witness stand is very fair in that sense is that what activists want to want candidates to do is so they want them to be authentic, but I also think they want them to be clear. And I don't think that uh, obfuscating, um, vacillating on the issues is where the activists want you to be. Um, I think so. I hope that the conversation that Scott Jensen is having leads to more conversations and more openness and candor by the party to examine these issues. The truth of the matter, though, is again, to be a realist, is that he's going to take some flack for having these conversations and this level of honesty. And as much as I'm not interested in anyone being a sacrificial lamb, he's not wrong when he says that there's that, that he's not wrong when he says that this conversation that he's a part of right now will come at some cost. And he is steering the party in a direction that it's clear based on Saturday state central meeting that some are not prepared to go to yet. And so I'd like to believe, and my hope is that there's a space for a candidate like Scott Jensen to talk about the issues that they need to talk about. Um, I, th- I It's undecided right now, and I don't know. But I certainly hope, I don't wanna take, I don't wanna be a roadblock or a hurdle for Scott Jensen or any Republican statewide candidate to go out there and have conversations on how the party can do better. That being said, anyone who's being a part of those conversations is going to take, they're going to take some heat right now. Because based on Saturday, I don't know if the activists are ready to have the conversations that they, that there's a, there's a consensus that we should have the conversation. And uh, that's, that's unfortunate, but we need, but the party needs to get there.
0: Agreed, and I and I hope that as we go through and are looking at different statewide candidates, I I hope there are conversations at the very least of of some sort of understanding of do you feel as though you could be pro life, but understand that pro choices you you know have those conversations of of trying to get them to even just like think and ponder over some of these these this main tip topic around abortion and. What Jensen has has said and proposed, and and maybe we'll get there. I'm not overly optimistic that it, at least the through the endorsing process that's going to happen in the next cycle or two. Um, but I am still proud and pleased that we're having those conversations.
1: What I want to make sure that we're able to do, Becky, you and I, and then and Jeff when he participates, is that we're helping create the space to have these conversations. That we're not shutting them down, that we're not blocking them from happening, and that we can be a help to having these conversations the party need to go. And so I hope that what we've established over the last few weeks is that we're a safe place to have these conversations and we hope to have more of them. Speaking of safe places to have conversation, that's my transition to a disappointing beginning of the food fight.
0: Wow, we haven't even named the the topic, and and you're already at it. You're
1: already disappointed. Didn't we do it in the intro?
0: Yeah, you're right. Okay.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. Do you need to read the script again?
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Just joking. Last night we were discussing on a a message what were the food fight was going to be. Becky's response was to say two things: cake flavors, and pastries. Yep. So if you're listening out there, you might want to turn your well audio backup. It was cake flavors and pastries. One more yep. time. Cake flavors and pastries. Did everybody hear that? Here's,
0: so sorry it's not as like out there as favorite grill items.
2: You you seem really kind of wound up about this and, and honestly, I, I don't know. Those are both kind of okay topics to me.
0: Thank you, cake, Jeff.
2: Cake flavors? Really? Yeah,
0: cake flavors. I mean, you know, there's
1: more than five cake flavors probably.
0: Michael one said that five. Michael, yeah, what it, you're one through five or what?
1: One through five is carrot cake.
0: Now, okay, that's that's obscene. One, that's one a ridiculous one. statement. The carrot cake is deserving of a spot in the top five. However, if in any topic Jeff or I came out and were like one through five X you would have a conniption. I mean, like, it's unacceptable.
1: Becky, when I got your text last night in response to the question, I went to grab my glasses to make sure I was reading it correctly. That's how I I just, I was just like, are you kidding me? Okay.
2: No, nobody, it's nobody else's fault that you're a weird, grumpy old man. So let's (laughs) move on.
0: I feel bad for your children, I guess, if they don't, uh, if you're not giving them more than five different cakes or five different breakfast danishes at some time, come on, live a little.
1: First of all, the word was pastries and okay. I cannot think, I cannot think of, I eat donuts. I have muffins. Um, okay. I couldn't That's provide a list of five pastries. That's too But different. you should, Becky. Let's hear, right your there. List of, let's hear your list of top five pastries.
0: You got it. I'm ready. Let's hear it. Number one, chocolate croissant, specifically from bread and chocolate on grand delicious. Yum. Always flaky. Mm-hmm. Two, Cheese Danish, some sort of jam on there.
2: Oh god, fantastic! Yep.
0: Three, three almond Danish. Now this is something I was just introduced to over the weekend. It was from Costco. It was delicious. I'm sounds, a good fan.
2: That sounds Number awful. Four, to the
0: sticky buns, a pecan caramel roll, all about it. Number five, white chocolate raspberry scone. Yum. Done, easy. I could That's have got one. I could have good. Top ten.
1: Jeff, no, do you hard. have a do you have a pastry list?
2: Yeah, my one through five is toaster strudels just God different
1: flavors of toaster So Now like... let's go to our actual food fight. Okay, okay. Now, Becky, let me be clear. I recognize all the words you had on your list. I just wouldn't call them pastries. Okay, well, that's, again, nobody else's problem but
2: your
0: own. Okay, you okay. can Google pastry after the show.
1: Okay, we're going to go with top fast food. Now, this isn't complicated, although Jeff made it a bit. Um, top restaurants top fast food restaurants you're driving through town and you got a bunch of options. Where's your first place you stop, Jeff.
2: Uh, The number one fast food restaurant is Taco Bell without a doubt. Okay. I
0: I, I disagree. My number one is McDonald's.
1: I take everything I said about pastries back. Uh, Number one is McDonald's. Yes. Okay.
2: So my number two is McDonald's. I have to just, you know, I, I had to give the top spot to Taco mm-hmm. Bell because I've spent more of my life and dollars in Taco Bell than McDonald's, but number two is McDonald's, so
0: and my number two is Taco Bell. So
1: Okay. Great. Uh, my number two is Burger King.
0: I mean, mm-hmm.
1: Maybe in nineteen eighty five, but
0: where do not... you find those anymore?
1: I live in Egan. They're all over the place.
0: All right. Okay. North Burbs, not so much.
1: Uh, number, Jeff, you're number three. Portillo's.
0: See, this is the trouble of this kind of list is that there's so many that I didn't even think of Portillo's. Delicious. Awesome.
1: Yeah, I didn't have Port. The minute he said, I'm like, ooh. Yeah. But I was just thinking driving through town, you can any, have meal in any town. Yep. Portillo's is a, I would consider a specialty restaurant.
2: Well, that's a, I mean, you can. Call it specialty fast food if you'd like, but it's definitely a fast food restaurant. It, okay. has, a, it has a drive through Thank you, Triple A.
0: My number three is Arby's.
1: Interesting. Arby's. Acceptable. Uh my number three, you may have heard of it, Taco Bell. <laughs> we
2: have a uh, we have a Arby's in Crystal that is that still has the big giant hat sign.
0: Yeah. I used to live like less than a mile away from there.
2: Yeah. Anyone remember so,
1: Racks restaurants? Oh my so, god, no, I, I loved love Rack's. Racks. It's great. We've just all three of us just <laughs> ate ourselves. Yeah. I love that.
0: Number
2: four.
1: Jeff, you're number four.
2: Uh, number four is Freddy's.
3: <sighs> kind of Come a new, I, a
2: relatively new entrant to the to the list. I guess it's probably been, you know, ten years now that since they've been there, but um, they're kind of popping up all over the place now.
0: So I didn't have Freddy's on my list, but I have to tell a quick story about Freddy's. One, I did eat it last week, so I I mad props. Delish. Um, one time we door dashed from Freddy's and they brought us somebody else's order. And they brought us instead of our two burgers, they brought us only one burger. And instead of my concrete mixer, whatever they call it there, um, they brought us soda and they just left it on our doorstep and left. And of course, you know, because most food fight conversations have a story of me being pregnant, I cried. Um, oh. my husband did let me eat the one burger that we got. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's my Friday story. It was delicious to- that's
2: I don't break. know if anything worse has ever happened to anyone on earth. I don't think so. Then ordering two burgers and then you get one. How, how would you even deal with that?
0: Yeah. Well, when you're, when you've got a pregnant wife, you, give I, it I
2: guess, yeah, <laughs> that's probably the right thing to do, but I mean, still it just, that's just, that's barbaric.
0: Um, my number four is Culver's.
2: Yeah, I knew
1: someone was going to do the Culver's knew, thing. Right, I think it's. Uh, I think it's the Wisconsin. Yes. Is it the Wisconsin?
0: Yeah, my husband would like eat Culvers for every meal if he could.
1: Yeah, it's just I don't know. I've never. My son He's is a big fine. fan of Culvers. Here's what frustrates me about Culvers: uh, when I order a hamburger there, I have to tell them that I want ketchup and mustard on it. Like it should just come oh, that way. My. it's presumed this is the guy
2: who had Burger King have it your way at the top of his list but yeah but look I I understand what you're saying okay I just think it's it's super overrated in my opinion
0: number five
1: wait I got can I do my number
0: four I thought you did yours my bad I'm so sorry my number
1: four my number four is Raising Cane's
3: Mm.
2: that's another place that I gotta say
1: is overrated I
2: I'm not saying it's not good. I'm just saying. There's
1: a few people I'm going to be sending this audio clip to. on DM to let them know that you called Raising Cane's overrated.
2: Yeah, it's just, again, I'm not saying it's bad. I just don't know that it's worth the huge line and the whole deal. And then.
0: They go fast. And that (laughs) sauce. And that Texas toast. Oh, so good. I'm going to tell you something.
1: I said this, I, another conversation, I son. I said this to my son, we were coming home from Raising Cane's and I said, if I was going to rob a restaurant, I would rob Raising Cane's. I wouldn't take the money. I would take the bread and the sauce. <laughs> well,
3: really if
1: we ever hear
2: the, uh, there isn't one in Egan, there's one in there Apple is. Valley, right? Oh, there there's is a, one
1: can, in Egan? Egan Raising, we got everything in Egan.
2: Okay. Well, if we ever hear that Egan Raising Cane's has been, uh, has been robbed, yep. we'll know. Yep. We'll number five. Exactly did it. Uh my final item is Del Taco. Del Taco, a place that Jeez. we sadly do not have here in Minnesota, but um an amazing taco joint that's available in the southwest.
0: Okay.
1: So disappointing.
0: I I uh, my number five also rounds out some delicious Mexican food, but I went to Taco John's. Give me those potato L's, a little salsa bar all day, or day. We just got
1: a, uh, we recently, in the last year, we got a Taco John's in Egan too. It's like I work for the Egan Chamber of Commerce or you something. You should. Yeah, you know, man. Taco John's. We got rid of the Dairy Queen. Egan had two Dairy Queens. We got rid of the Dairy Queen in, that was up closer to where I live and the, to the single Dairy Queen south of where I am. And the Dairy Queen close to me was replaced by a Taco John's. Uh, Becky, before I move on, um, To my number five. Well, no, I'll do my number five. Then I have to share a story quick. Uh, My number five is Jimmy John's. Mm.
0: Jimmy John's. Freakishly Mm.
1: fast. I'm convinced that that restaurant is losing money by the speed in which they deliver sandwiches. They shouldn't be able to deliver me a sandwich that quick, but they do. And it's amazing. And I think Jimmy John's is great. Yum. Now, Becky, on uh, a story I've been meaning to say is a couple weeks ago, we did an episode and I was down in Iowa. I went for a late night uh, walk with my kids through Dyersville, Iowa, and there was a baseball game going on. And the baseball game's raffle prize was announced at roughly 10 o'clock at night to much applause was an ice cream cake from Dairy Queen. (laughs) That
0: is so exciting. What a good raffle prize. The
1: big raffle prize was an ice cream cake from Dairy Queen. So I I brought it up to my kids. I said, oh, Becky would have. Certainly wouldn't a, would have liked to have won that prize. Yep, sure so. would have. So now I'm hungry. I'm starving. My gosh! And I and I the 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 one that I feel bad about is Portillo's. I should have picked that.
2: Man, what, what's what's
1: good right now? Portillo's. What's your
2: go-to at Portillo's?
1: A Maxwell Street sausage, and it's your order. Okay. What Just is one it? Maxwell it. What is this?
2: Street Polish, and then a the, uh, Italian beef.
1: That's it. Yeah, you got you got me hooked on that. Dipped. Of, of course.
0: course. Yeah. Yeah. How dare I? Yeah.
1: How about you, Becky? What, what do you want to dry?
0: No, I'd probably do the Italian beef or maybe like a Chicago dog.
1: With ketchup, probably.
0: No, all the mustard. Yeah. Come on.
1: <laughs> now the reaction. You were really offended. It's like I <laughs> called you it's like I called you a slur or something. Your reaction was quite <laughs> was quite prof- quite pronounced. No, good. That's good. Well, we're gonna I do, do. One or so two more food fights before we transition to fantasy football. And Jeff, I'm sorry, um, you know nothing about sports, so you're going to have to be left out of these conversations.
2: That's true. It will be to everyone's benefit. Yes. Like, what uh, What do we uh, – you still call it Tweets of the Week, even though we don't have <laughs> tweets anymore? Ooh. Wow. Zits of the Week?
1: Oh, wow. I think we might have to call them – wow, I never thought about that x of
2: the x, week x posts of the week i don't i don't know you can still call it tweets of the week everyone knows everyone still calls it dayton's we're okay <laughs> yeah.
0: my my favorite is when you read a news article and it says you know this person posted on x in quotations or in a parentheses formerly twitter like yeah. at, nobody's it, it's gonna i don't know how long it's gonna take that to phase out but i bet quite a while well, all right
1: jeff why don't you go first
2: Alright, so I did some recon before um before this because uh unlike Michael, I don't watch cable news all day every day. So I have only ever read this gentleman's name. Um I've I've not heard I've not heard it, but I believe it's pronounced Vivek Ramaswamy. He's running for president. That sounds right. Yeah, so there was a there was a tweet that said uh Vivek Ramaswamy is performing Lose Yourself at the Iowa State Fair. And wouldn't you know it, it's 45 seconds of this guy performing Lose Yourself, of course, by Eminem uh, at the Iowa State Fair. And so then my tweet of the week goes to H.M., whose handle is M.N. Miracle, M-E-R-I-C-K-E-L. And it says, I'm very torn as to whether or not I want my president to be able to do this. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it is a good tweet. I have it, seen that clip and it is, um, it's, and I, would,
2: um I would agree. It's part of me is like, yeah, we got to like this guy president. And part of me is like, eh, I'm not so sure that that's, that's the best thing. I like
1: the, um, I like the energy and enthusiasm. Well, nobody asked. move on. Yeah. Go ahead, Becky.
0: Um, mine is also a presidential candidate. It's a little less entertaining, but, um, my, my man, gov Christie, Chris Christie tweeted out, uh, earlier this week um, a little ad that says less than two weeks, the first debate, let's see if Trump respects you enough to show up. It's a privilege to run for president of the United States. It's a privilege to be on that stage and work to earn your vote. If Trump shows up, I can guarantee you he'll know I am there. I like it coming out hard, putting a little challenge, you know, Trump doesn't want to show up, but man, you know, it probably irks him when he gets ribbed like this. So, uh, I like to see it.
1: That's great. It's it's interesting. My tweet of the week is about Chris Christie too. It was tweeted out this morning about Phil Drobnick who is a gold medalist with the 2018 US Olympic gold medal curling team. Um he's a coach um with the curling team and he tweeted out a clip of Chris Christie uh, on with Bill Hemmer from Fox News last night and Phil Drobnick said we need more people like at Gov Christie in politics, hashtag Trump indictments. It was a uh, Chris Christie was making a very strong point. Chris Christie, former United States attorney. He was a supporter of the president the first time he ran. He's now running for president. His messaging on the need for Republicans to move away from Trump has been spot on, needed and happy to compliment the, the tweet by by Phil about Governor Christie. And I'm glad that Becky, you had a tweet about Governor Christie, too.
0: Um, I gotta say we also, as the podcast, um, we I believe received a retweet from Coach Phil at one point, and that was something that I am gonna hang on my mantle. So fan.
1: It was great. Well, another show.
0: We did it.
2: Another one in the books.
1: Another one in the books. I'm gonna we're not ready to announce it yet, but we're gonna have an upcoming uh special event that we'll be teasing out on social media in the next couple of days. So stay tuned for that. Uh, But otherwise, everyone, thanks for participating today. Jeff, thank you for showing up again.
0: Coming out of retirement. Thanks for inviting
2: me.
1: Glad to be here. (laughs) Becky, glad thanks for being here. Anytime. We'll see you later this week. Bye. Bye. We want to thank you for listening to The Breakdown with Broadcom and Becky. Before we go, we'd like to remind you again to show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or any platform where you listen, you can also leave a review on our website at bbbreakpod.com. We're also on Twitter at bbbreakpod. Again, Twitter at at bbbreakpod. I want to thank everyone again. Becky, thank you so much. We will return next week. See you then.
0: See ya.